Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Join us for this final season as our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, explore how we relate to water in its natural state. This season, we bring you conversations about community, wildlife, and recreation. We also speak with two members of the Miami Nation who help us understand the relationship the Native peoples cultivated with water. Today, we take a closer look at water-based recreation and its role in our lives, from the spiritual to the economic. We talk with Clint Kowalik, a fishing guide based out of Indianapolis, and Scott Salmon with Friends of the White River. We discuss access to the water and bringing new people to it, how the environment has changed, and the mental health benefits derived from being on the water. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective Tap's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. Our first conversation is with Clint Kowalik, who runs the fishing guide service Go Fishing with Clint. Clint describes why the water is his happy place, the diversity of Indiana's fishery, and what it takes to get out there and join him. My name is Clint Kowalik, and I'm a small business owner. I uh, used to work for the DNR, uh, left the Department of Natural Resources in January, and started my own small business called Go Fishing with Clint. It's probably explained in the title, but what does Go Fishing with Clint do? I get people fishing. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, fishing is uh, a passion of mine. Um, My dad took me fishing when I was four, and I've been hooked ever since. No pun intended. All my puns are intended. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I used to work for the DNR. Uh, I ran their uh, sport fishing education program for 12 and a half years. Uh, The biggest gig I I ran was the fishing pond at the state fair where we get 3,000 kids fishing. And I had uh, an army of volunteers uh, helping me uh, get kids fishing there. So the first 10 years, uh, my job was really fun. And then over the last uh, two and a half years, my position changed to more administrative. The fire was burning a little low, so going out on my own, and it's been quite a blessing. Uh, I've had um, families, uh, individuals, I've had large groups. I've had this kind of this odd but wonderful partnership with the Indiana Audubon Society. Don't tell them that I'm not even a birder. Like, <laughs> but, uh, um, and I've, I've done some events out there at their uh, bird sanctuary, Mary Gray, and uh, outside of Connersville, and that's been uh, super cool. What makes recreation on the water so special? It's my happy place. <laughs> so whenever I see water, I feel better. If I'm driving down the road and I'm going across a bridge, I usually slow down, which is probably not safe. But I'm always like rubbernecking, you know, looking across to see what the water looks like. And it, it just gets me excited, but also calm at the same way. It's, uh, it's hard to explain. It's almost like uh, my, my wife, Debbie, she loves to read. And uh, she's been reading mystery novels lately. And, and whenever I, I come to a body of water, it's like a mystery novel. You know, you see the cover. You're told not to judge the book by its cover, but it gives you a hint at what's inside. And you, you open it up and maybe that first cast is the first page. And then every, every cast is a new page, a new chapter. People often ask me, what's my, my favorite place to fish? And usually I say it's the next one or a new one because of that mystery and, and being able to solve what's in there. And now you may finish the book at that time. You may put a bookmark in it and come back, but then the time you come back, it may be a whole new story depending on season, time of day, temperature, 
uh, pressure, uh, and that makes it exciting too. I'd love to hear you talk some about the diversity of species, you know, and the things in the water that we have here that's really special. It is special, and most people aren't aware of that. If people aren't aware of something, they're not connected to it. This is a great outlet uh, for me, and for them, the d diversity underneath the water surface. There's 200 species of fish in the state of Indiana. That's a lot. Most people say like 30, 40. I'd say most of that is because of the diversity of aquatic habitats. Indiana's called the crossroads of America, mostly because of the interstate systems, but it's also a crossroads of ecosystems and different types of water. So in the north, uh, we have, a long time ago, there were glaciers, and then when those glaciers receded, they gave us natural lakes. So those are in northern Indiana and southern Indiana. We've got some swampy areas, some sloughs, some backwater. Uh, we've got creeks and streams and rivers and, and lakes and ponds. So all, all that diversity of water and habitat leads to diversity of fish. And when you have a good habitat like uh, the White River and Fall Creek, you have clean water and diversity of habitat. So diversity being flow. So you've got pools and runs and riffles, so different uh, levels and sp of speed in water, different types of substrate, sand, gravel, cobble, boulders. So all that combined will lead to little critters. The fancy term is benthic macroinvertebrates. Uh, so that is a fancy term. <laughs> yeah, and I don't usually like to use fancy terms, but like Fancy Nancy in her books, she always gives the fancy word and then she calls them bugs. But so uh, larvae of damselflies, dragonflies, mayflies, so you may see some things buzzing around above the water surface. Well, at one time they were living under the water, and if the water is not clean, uh, you don't have those little critters, and those little critters will lead to bigger critters. So uh, bigger fish like darters and minnows feeding on them, that supports game fish, uh, sport fish to eat those. So it's all related, but it comes down to, I think the habitat is pretty important. That leads to all the diversity. How easy or difficult is it to get into fishing or water recreation? Fishing is pretty easy. Oftentimes people make things more difficult than they really are. And when people make things more difficult, it becomes stressful and not enjoyable. So what I like to do with my clients and at my uh, bigger events, I like to provide a fun and safe environment. Once everyone's feeling safe, more likely to have fun, and the equipment and the bait that I use is very simple. So. You can start fishing without a huge investment. A simple closed face, push button, rod and reel, it, it comes together in a, in a pack. Uh, and going with a simple uh, terminal tackle that's tackled to the end of the line, uh, hooks and weights and sinkers. And you can find worms in your compost pile or underneath the rock, or there's crickets everywhere. So that's what I provide. Like, okay, here's how to keep it simple. And then once you're there, then you can go bigger and, and better and, and more expensive. And fishing, you get what you want out of it. Sometimes fishing could be, like if I just want to disconnect, I just go to the water and that is mentally and physically and spiritually healing, just being at the water, and then casting, casting a line, it's, it just feels right. And so it could be a great way to get exercise. So get out of the doors, get fresh air, get sunshine. Uh, my favorite type of fishing is wading. Put on some thin shorts and some junky shoes and, and get out in the water. And I feel even more connected with the water because it's flowing over uh, my legs and uh, oh, it's just a really neat experience. And I grew up fishing actually. My grampy had a lake and taught 
made to fish and my siblings. But for people who didn't grow up fishing, can you talk about, okay, what do you do once you catch a fish? Well, if you're fortunate enough uh, to catch a fish, you have a choice. You're either practicing catch and release or you're practicing catch and keep. So if you're fishing uh, public water, you need to know the rules, how long they have to be before you can keep them. Take a step back, and if you are fishing public water and you're 18 or older, you need a fishing license, unless if it's a free fishing day, which we have four during the year, but most of the time, if you're 18 or older, fishing public water, you need a license. So that's, that's one thing. Fishing private water, which I think both of you have mentioned, you just need permission to fish uh, private water, which you both had. But so once you catch the fish, then you have to like, do I want to keep it? So if you want to keep it, you have to know what it is. And uh, is it long enough? Well, you need something to measure the fish with. Uh, so having a fishing guide and a ruler is pretty handy. If you want to keep it and you can, you need to know how many you can keep. So that's called a, a bag limit and you have to keep track of that. If you have to release the fish or you want to release the fish, then we need to handle the fish with care. Uh, so fish are slimy uh, on purpose. The technical term is actually mucus, but I don't like using the term mucus. The fish uh, secrete uh, this viscous mixture of proteins and enzymes called slime. And the slime keeps the fish healthy. It's sort of like Neosporin, triple antibiotic cream. Uh, but if you wipe that slime off with a dry hand or a, a rag or the ground, that slime is going to come off. And if you put it back in the water, it's going to be more susceptible get, to getting sick. Uh, so handling with fish with care is definitely the number one things on my list. And when you're fishing in the water, you're already wet and your hands are wet and the fish is wet and it's all good. I mostly practice catch and release, but I do like eating fish too. Do you have any experience helping people who come from different communities, different cultures, different levels of ability, being able to bring their unique circumstances to the water? Oh gosh, I remember while we're working at the uh, fishing pond at the state fair, there was a, a troop of blind scouts. So they had different levels of vision and there were some magic moments there. Just them being able to touch the fish that they caught, you know, feeling the tug, one, the tug's the drug, they say. But <laughs> and then feeling that, uh, uh, that fish in their hands, they, they can't even see it. When you lose one sense, the rest of your senses are, are amplified. So that, those are some magic moments and uh, helping some folks in, in wheelchairs uh, and some adults with special needs. Uh, it just, they get so much enjoyment and those helping them or you know, pushing them around or guiding them, they get uh, enjoyment out too. So, oh gosh, it's a triple win of, of fun there. Can you talk about some public access points to fishing or yeah, the water? And, and so that's one of those uh, hurdles people have to go fishing because they don't know where to fish. There are 14 different public waters in Marion County. And within that 14, there are three that have multiple access uh, points, like White River and Fall Creek uh, and Eagle Creek. And Eagle Creek, the reservoir, of course, then you have the creek below the park and above the park. I mean, the White River, just in Marion uh, County, has got almost 10 public access points. And a lot of that has to do with parks, uh, greenways. Uh, I love greenways because usually they're next to a blue way, a waterway. And so if there's a, a sidewalk or you know a park, those are public places to fish. Under bridges, 
Those are neat places uh, to fish. Yeah, 14 public places, and that's just my list. Maybe there's more. Yeah, there's some neat places to fish Indianapolis, to, to go fishing in the city with Go Fishing with Clint. So every fisherman has their big fish story. What's yours? I would love to tell my story. I was at a, a city park pond fishing for bass and using a jig, a hook with a weighted head, looks like a mushroom, and then this soft, rubbery, plastic dealie. It's about three inches long. And it seems really simple. Kind of looks like a leech or a worm. You know, something a fish would eat off the bottom. So I'm fishing off the bottom along the shore. And all of a sudden, felt like a truck just hit the lure. And I pull up thinking I either caught a truck or a really large fish. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm snagged. Okay, so I, I go walking over to where it is and trying to pull it off the other side, and then it, it's moving. It is going. And so I loosen up the drag, which is the tightness of the reel, and it goes, and it's, it's going, and I'm, I'm walking with it. So if you've ever walked a large dog, uh, that's what I was, I was feeling. So I'm walking along the shore, like back and forth, back and forth. No one is watching this. I wish someone was filming this. And uh, I don't know what it is. Uh, if it's a bass, it's the biggest bass in the entire world. But I don't know what it is. And so after 10 minutes, I see it. It's a common carp. And I usually don't catch common carp because they eat, you know, smelly stuff. And, but it bit this soft plastic on this jig. And I'm like, oh, wow. And my heart's pumping and I'm getting, I'm getting sweaty. I'm getting tired. And I'm like, I'm still, I'm going with it. So every once in a while, I'm reeling in, reeling a little bit, a little bit at a time. I get it to the edge of the pot and I'm holding onto the rod. Like it's too big, I can't pull it out. It is way too big. I lift my rod up, I reach down to grab the large beast. This is like a George Costanza moment. I was like, I'm gonna get my hand in its massive gill cover, it's like a handle. So I grab it, the pole goes flying because something, something broke. So I'm like, okay, put through, throw the pole down, I reach down, and it, it goes, it gives a kick, and it goes uh, shooting out, out into the, uh, the deep. I'm like, uh-uh. So I jump in after it. Like, I don't know, I was like, I don't care about my phone, my, my wallet. So I jump in after it. My right leg is submerged above my knee, and I thought I would have it with my right arm. I, I reach under it, it shoots out, and it's gone. Oh, no. <laughs> and so I didn't get a picture. <laughs> so I try to share this you know, in a text, which just doesn't have, like you, you saw my emotions yes. with my hands and everything. The, the, the listeners won't be able to see that. But then I, I look at the, so I thought the line broke, the hook broke. So that's my, my story. Next, Scott Salmon is the executive director of Friends of the White River, an Indianapolis-based nonprofit working to bring people to the water. He talks about changing the public perception of the White River, the success of the Friends River School program, and how good policy can help make recreation safer and more accessible. My name's Scott Salmon. I'm the executive director of Friends of the White River. Could you explain what Friends of the White River is? So Friends of the White River was founded in 1985, and it was primarily started just to clean up trash along the riverbanks along the White River here in central Indiana. It was mostly people who liked to fish. Uh, smallmouth are kind of the premier uh, species that live in the White River from a recreational fishing standpoint. Many of the places folks wanted to get on and off the river were just filled with garbage, trash, illegally dumped debris. 
And that's been a marquee feature of our programming since you know the mid-80s. We pull about 25 tons worth of garbage, illegally dumped material, trash, abandoned homeless camps. All those things get cleaned up, 25 tons of it every year, which should tell you that the problem's like not getting any better because we don't see less and less trash every year. That's what Friends was started as and continues to do. In 1999, there was the infamous White River fish kill. The restoration, the after effects of the fish kill, it took about five years for the Indiana DNR and other nonprofits who were trying to restore the river from a fisheries perspective were able to complete that process. There was a $14 million settlement with a responsible party. So by the early 2000s, 2004, 2005, the river was back to better than it was before from a fishery standpoint and arguably from a water quality standpoint. But people still had a really negative association with the river. They thought that if you put your toe in it, your toe would melt off. So friends at that point decided that we were gonna step up and start changing that perception, which was the beginning of our river school program. So Kevin Hardy, who was the executive director before me, started off as executive director during the fish kill settlement process and was integral in holding the parties responsible and keeping that public perception in front of the policymakers. After the settlement was done, through a grant through the Nine Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust, we acquired a fleet of white water rafts. If you've ever been, on the White River, it's not exactly class one, two, or three whitewater, but rafts were the best tool for the job to get as many people as possible on the river with as few volunteers and staff as we had. When I became involved, it was around 2008. I was a naturalist aide at the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, and the folks I worked for told me to go out and uh, help Kevin Hardy for the day because I knew how to steer a raft. The third program that we have is called Stream Stewards, and that's a private lands program that works with people who have land on the White River or any of its tributary streams, a tributary being a river that leads into the river that leads into the White River. So this Stream Stewards program is really in its infancy. It's a partnership with the uh, Marion County Soil and Water Conservation District. A lot of these stream restoration projects are done on public land because they're very expensive. So you've seen at different places along maybe Indy Parks, Hamilton County Parks, uh, Newfields has a stream restoration project along the White River. These cost hundreds of thousands of dollars way outside the scope that an individual landowner can even begin to, to pay if the project is worth more than the value of their home. That's where Stream Steward steps in. We help the landowner understand what they can do, the different pricing options, and uh, hopefully someday provide volunteer labor for the removal of invasive plant species. Is Friends of the White River limited to Marion County or Central Indiana, or is it the whole river? We aren't limited by our bylaws or anything. The organization was founded in, in Central Indiana. Uh, most of our membership is in Central Indiana. We're only limited by the size of our staff. If I do a river school operation and we launch from Oliver's Woods Nature Preserve or Hazel Landing in Carmel, that's a 10-15 minute drive from my house. If we want to do an operation somewhere further away, it takes more time, fuel costs, transportation costs. So we're only limited basically by our equipment and our available staff, which is me, and then I have a, a part-time development manager. Tell us a little more about the river school. 
River School is so much fun. It's the reason that I wanted to take this job, like picking up trash is great and all. I have a background in outdoor education, so I used to lead wilderness expeditions in Maine, and I've done a number of outdoor education jobs throughout my career. I really think that's the best way that I can be contributing to the cause of conservation and natural resources, is just by planning these trips, putting them on, keep everyone safe, having really good educational content, uh, and then at the end, folks often say, you know, this, I never knew this resource was here. That input, especially for our volunteers, because we have a volunteer guide who steers every raft, it's really encouraging uh, for them to be able to know they had an impactful experience uh, on people who had not been on the river before. So River School right now uh, is about a 3.4 mile float trip along the White River. We launch now from Hazel Landing uh, up in Carmel and we take out at Oliver's Woods Nature Preserve. And along this stretch, we go through really a wonderful forested corridor that's mostly protected, either public land on both sides or areas that are, can't be built on because they're too close to the river. And so we see a tremendous amount of wildlife, uh, birds, frogs, amphibians, uh, lots of mammals, if we get out there at the right time of day. It's really a chance for people who don't own a paddlecraft to get on the river. And given that public access to the White River is really limited, in Marion County especially, it might be the only chance that people living in the city get a chance to get on the river is through friends. Can you talk a little bit about why access to waterways is important? Well, I'm sure this whole podcast has talked about the importance of water from a perspective of one, we drink it, two, water in large quantities causes flooding. And being a state uh, that has gotten rid of most of our wetlands, which protect from flooding, we have also built a ton of impervious surfaces that increase the speed with which water gets into the river. Uh, those are complex issues even for people who understand them. When someone is on a boat in the river and can visually see the effects that all that water has all at once on the shoreline, they might not even realize it. But if I take them out and I can explain that to them, they gain a much greater sort of understanding for the power of water and why it's so important. But folks can't, I think, really value water unless, and especially the White River, unless they've been able to use it recreationally. Other states with much cleaner water and maybe outdoor recreation economies that are based on their waterways, there's a whole industry. Outdoor recreation is one of the biggest industries in the country. These experiences, tourism, ecotourism, outdoor recreation, are a huge economic driver for places that actually embrace it. Indiana, central Indiana hasn't. And I know that as someone who's tried to find a career as an outdoor recreation professional, there's a distinct tie between the quality of the natural resource and the economic impact that can be had through uh, the outdoor recreation economy. I think it's interesting to hear you talk about how in, like expanding outdoor recreation opportunities is good for the environment in a lot of ways because it gets people aware of it. But then there's also that push-pull of like, well, if a lot of people use it, then it gets trashed. But then like who gets to say who gets access to it and who doesn't? And But there is a tension there. There is, except for the fact that we have barely gotten to anywhere close to the carrying capacity of that river from a recreational standpoint. And I pulled 25 tons worth of garbage out of it every 
year. In biology, a habitat can only support so many critters of one type. We're not at that point with the White River. I would love to have that problem, but we have the opposite problem now. The resource is so degraded through decades of pollution, uh, specifically sedimentation from upstream in the watershed, combined with the fact that folks who have no other options but to dump their trash in the river, there are huge socioeconomic issues that are causing really negative environmental impacts that recreational use has nothing to do with. And so we got, we got a problem of lack of use, not a problem of too much use. A lot of people might think, oh, if you put your toe in the White River, you're going to melt, <laughs> which obviously isn't true. On the other hand, you are talking about some pretty severe water quality issues. Are there things that people need to be aware of when they are engaging with the White River? Absolutely. I'll tell you all the same thing that I tell every single river school participant. There are things in the river, they live in the river, we can't see them, that we don't want inside of our bodies. Our bodies do a really good job about keeping those things out. But if we let them in by putting our eyes underwater, splashing, putting our hand in the water and then licking it, those are the things to be avoided. Indiana in general has poor water quality because of sedimentation. Any water body in the state probably has some level of sediment or other types of pollution. And there's folks way smarter than me that can do the science on that. But if you, know, you have the land getting into the water, anything that's on the land gets in the water as well, and those create those small organisms that can make us really sick. And so it's a thing to be aware of, but it doesn't mean you don't recreate on the river. Yeah, uh, what are some other ways that you get people to let go of that stereotype of the super toxic river to never get close to? I think when folks see all the critters like great blue herons, green herons, muskrats, just all the wildlife that utilizes the White River Corridor along our river school route. Those creatures interface with the water on a daily basis. North of where we do river school in Hamilton County, there's a fly fishing guide service. They fish for smallmouth. When Indiana DNR and Indiana Environmental Management and Muncie Bureau of Water Quality, they did a study a few years ago looking at the health of the entire White River ecosystem. They looked at habitat, they did fish sampling, and the best stretch of the river from a, a fishery standpoint is really, you know, north of Noblesville, between Noblesville and Daleville. You know, you go up there and it's beautiful and it's a world-class fly fishing smallmouth stream. Those kinds of experiences can change opinions if only people can get on the river and have the experiences. Speaking about getting on the river and having those experiences, can you talk about the people who have gone through river school and the impacts you've seen from them participating in that experience? Right. So river school has gone on for quite a long time, uh, since around 2006. You have almost a whole generation of kids who had the opportunity to get on the river, now they're in positions of being professionals. It's always a leap of faith doing these outdoor education programs because it's really hard to prove causality between the one day you had them on the river and any kind of behavior, we'll say 20 years later. It is a leap of faith though, you gotta take as a professional in the industry that what you're doing today is gonna have dividends uh, long-term for the health of the resource. 
but you have to provide these opportunities, these volunteer opportunities for people to just get started, to do something that has some level of immediate gratification. We really have a deficit of public land here in Indiana. The amount of land that is available for folks to engage in, you know, more aggressive, you know, whether it's like backpacking or backcountry paddling, like those things which are taken for granted west of the Mississippi and definitely west of the Rocky Mountains, we don't have it here. Indiana State Parks, since the, the start of the pandemic, their campgrounds have been at 97% capacity. That tells me that we have a severe shortage of campgrounds. We have tremendous assets with our rivers, even though they do suffer from sedimentation. Those rivers, though, are mostly bounded on both sides by private land, and so access is always at a premium. The Indiana Division of Fish and Wildlife does a great job with public access points for larger rivers, but as far as getting on these small streams for fishing and paddling access, there's not a lot being done currently other than you know small parks departments buying up land and putting in access points. What are your hopes for the future of the White River? I think an immediate hope is the completion right in Indianapolis of the, the Dig Indy system with the, um, the combined sewer overflow issue finally being resolved in a way that the, the EPA is happy with. That has tremendous impact for the, the water quality downstream of downtown Indianapolis. It doesn't really address sedimentation coming into Indianapolis and in the waterways upstream. So I think a hope that's more distant or long-term is that we find a way to undo some of the, the draining of our, of our wetlands in, um, in the watershed. There are a ton of programs out there for landowners to, or conservation-minded landowners, to put in all sorts of interventions to reduce soil erosion, even programs to take land that is currently in other uses and be converted back to a wetland. Every little bit helps. I think we saw the low point in the state's attitudes towards wetlands a few years ago with a law that the General Assembly repealed, a law that had protected Indiana wetlands for over 20 years. Hopefully we start crawling out of that hole and start realizing that it's just not enough to protect wetlands that we have, because frankly, we don't have many, and many of them are in places that are in very small watersheds. Uh, we need to start restoring the wetlands that we've lost. What are some ways that we can use policy to help improve our waterways? Right, so there, there's two aspects to policy. One is the, the intention of the policy, like what is it trying to achieve? That's an area where there's still quite a lot of debate going on in the state. You have folks in my field and organizations, big and small, that are advocating for treating our natural resources better. Uh, and then you have other interest groups who have probably significantly more pull with elected officials to not necessarily do the opposite of that, but make that a very low priority. Elections decide who the policy leaders are, and then it's up to nonprofits like Friends of the White River to do the best we can with whoever's been elected to those offices and presenting sound science and, and reasoned arguments. And we don't always win. In fact, we haven't been winning a lot lately. Have the deck stacked against us, it seems. The other part to policy is the implementation, and that comes through funding. Our state agencies, Indiana Department of Natural Resources, 
Pinckney and the Department of Environmental Management have been chronically underfunded for years. There's a kind of a running joke in the biologist community um, that Indiana is the farm team for other states' DNRs in the Midwest. Compensation's low, working conditions are often poor. Folks leave, and then more work gets piled on the people who are left, and then you're doing two or three jobs for the salary of maybe 80% of what a biologist would be making in another state. The situation is similar with environmental managers and in IDEM. You know, I worked for Indiana DNR as the state's fish kill biologist for five years, so this isn't me hearing it. I lived it, and I, I left the state primarily because I was working really hard doing two jobs and, you know, not being compensated at a rate that folks around the Midwest were, were being compensated at. So that needs to change. And it's only going to change when state personnel department, the legislature, the governor's office decide to invest in the people who are doing the work to protect our environment and our natural resources. The value of water goes far beyond what comes out of our tap, what we use to grow our food, or what gets consumed for electricity. Water is often at the center of what it means to be part of a community. Join us this season as we talk more about water and the many lives that are connected to it. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us in this conversation about water. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.